All right, Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. I will begin by reading from the English Standard Version. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 and 4. Reading from the Message Bible now, what a God we have and how fortunate we are to have him, this father of our master Jesus because Jesus was raised from the dead. We've been given a brand new life and have everything to live for, including a future in heaven. And the future starts now. I want to pray this morning before we dive into the message. And uh, uh, so I want to pray over our message and and our time together. But I also want to lift up uh, a need that was brought to me today. A young man uh, in his early 30s, his name is Stephen. And he's been diagnosed with stomach cancer. He has a wife and four boys. And uh, I, I want to pray for him and ask you to join with me and pray as, as well uh, while we pray over our service. Father, I thank you for your presence that's in the room today, for the opportunity that we have to come together and to worship you. Lord, today we lift up Stephen to you, his life to you. We know that you're a healer. And God, we're asking you to intervene right now and that you bring healing to his body. Do a great work in this man's life. Uh, heal him and, and show him that you are God. Be, be a miracle to their family, Lord God. I thank you for it right now. In Jesus' name. Father, we open our hearts, our minds, and our spirits to hear from you and to be challenged by the power of your word. Do something great in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you're watching online, thank you so much for being with us. Sorry you couldn't be in the service with us today. We're having a great time. Uh, But I pray that the blessings of God would be upon your life. Get ready to receive today. Get still. Get quiet. uh, Get get comfortable. Wherever you are, God's going to speak right to your heart today. And I'm looking forward to sharing this word with you. Last week, we began a new series. uh, And the title of the series is The Four Cups, Painful Promises. And we, we, we begin with this idea that God has promises for us in Scripture and He wants to fulfill them in us. I want your life, at the end of your life, them to say over you like they did about Joshua that every word came to pass. Not one word failed, but every promise that God spoke over him and the children of Israel came to pass within his lifetime. How many of you want that to be said over you? I, I, I want that for your life. I want the promises of God over your life. Uh, I read to you a number of promises. I want to read to you a word that was given to our church. And it's a longer word, but I want to give you just a couple of, uh, of the excerpts. Uh, pray for direction and obedience. And God said, uh, don't try to just figure out what you're going to do this year, but ask me. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. Then he said, my heart burns for fellowship with you. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. James 4 and 8. This is a year of power and strength. It might look like the enemy is winning, but he is being set up for failure. I have given you my strength and my power to overcome and recover everything the enemy has ever stolen from you. This will be a great year, and you must walk in my love. 
Your love for each other will save the lost, heal the sick, raise the dead, and set the captives free. And that's why I came. Trust me, listen to me, follow me, and you will finish this race strong. What a great promise. This is a year of strength and power that God has for us. But here's the thing. If you want, to, if you want that to be said of your life, we learned th- three things about the promises of God last week. Number one, you have to know the promises of God. If you don't know them, they won't help you. You have to know the promises of God. The Bible says, uh, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. You've got to know the truth. Secondly, we have to understand the promises of God. What, what good is knowing it if you don't understand it? You'll, you'll miss the context. You'll miss what God's really trying to do. You'll miss the full uh, scope of what He wants to do in your life. And you might miss the premises. You're part of the promise. You see, this is a covenant that we have with God. It's a covenant. That means there's my part and there's His part. And if we're not careful, we'll look up and we'll miss our part and be blaming God for not coming through on His part. And He's saying, I can't until you do this one little thing. Now, here's the great thing about God and His covenant. We do the little, He does the big. We do the easy part, He does the hard part. Think about salvation and in this promise of salvation. He went to the cross. All we have to do is say yes. We do the little and He does the big. But you have to understand the promises of God. And then thirdly, you need to pursue the promises of God. You need, you need to know them, you need to understand them, and then you need to pursue them, go after them. They are worth reaching for. Pursue the promises of God in your life. Among other promises, I brought you to these verses in in Exodus chapter 6, these four core promises, these four I will statements that God made to the children of Israel. And it's out of these four core promises that most of the rest of the promises in Scripture, they all point back to these. I'll set up the scene for you again and... um, We find ourselves in the book of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. In Jacob's days, the family was flourishing, they were being blessed, but the youngest son, whose name was Joseph, was taken into, he was sold into slavery by his other brothers. He ends up in Egypt as the number two guy under Pharaoh. Now this at first seems like a big problem, and I'm sure that in Joseph's life, it, it, it was pretty much a mess. But what God was actually doing was setting him up to be a savior for the rest of his family. Because Jacob and the rest of their sons and daughters and wives and families and livestock, they went through an extreme drought. And there was famine in the land. And through that, Joseph was able to reach out to his family who didn't even know who he was. They brought the family to Egypt. And Joseph was able to provide for uh, his father Jacob, all of his brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, uncles, everyone. He was able to provide for them while in Egypt because of the position that he held. It was a great miracle that God did. And he took something that seemed horrible and used it as salvation for his family. Now, for a while while in Egypt, everything was great with the Israelites. They lived there. They were blessed. They were treated kindly. They were treated with favor. Uh, Things were going well. 
But then they began to multiply because the blessings of God were upon the Israelites. And when God blesses things, they multiply. And so the Israelites began to multiply. And after Joseph was gone, and after that Pharaoh had died, and they forgot about Joseph, and they forgot about the things that Joseph had done for Egypt, the Bible tells us that they got very scared because the Israelites were multiplying faster than the Egyptians. And the Egyptians said, if we don't do something, then the Israelites, they're going to outnumber us, and they're going to take over our country. They didn't understand that the Israelites didn't want to be there in the first place. The Israelites had a land that they wanted to get back to, but they were afraid that the Israelites would would grow, outnumber them, and take over Egypt. So Pharaoh said, here's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to deal with them harshly, and we're going to have to enslave them. But the more he enslaved them, the more they multiplied. There's a lesson in there that no matter what the devil tries to do with you, if you keep walking right before the Lord, when God says you're blessed, you're blessed. And they continue to multiply, and they continue to multiply, and they continue to multiply. This went on for 400 years. Now understand, no longer were they living in favor in Egypt. No longer were they walking in good times. No longer were they uh, living in the good graces of Pharaoh, but now they are slaves. And I don't use slaves in, in a term that implies that they were just treated badly and they didn't make as much money. I'm talking about they were slaves. Uh, one of the worst forms of slavery we saw, we've seen in, in our entire history of humanity, we, we find it right there in Egypt. They enslaved them. They, enfor- they forced them to work. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes. But they enslaved them. And then they get to the place where that's not enough either. And so they start killing all of their male children. It was a difficult time. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 through 25, During those days... During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And and I love these verses. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And I love this last line. And God knew. 400 years they prayed for deliverance. Can you imagine how many times... I want you to just think about this. Let's put 400 years in context. In the year 1607, the first American colony was formed, Jamestown. And the year 1620 was the year that the pilgrims landed. That was about 400 years ago that those two events were taking place. That means... That from the time the pilgrims were here and Jamestown was founded all the way till today was about the same amount of time that the Israelites were in Egypt. It's a long time. How many times do you think they had prayed for a deliverer? How many times do you think they had cried out to God? Do you think after 400 years that was, that, 
that they finally decided, well, let's turn to God. No, they had been crying and they had been groaning and they had been asking God to help them. How many times, and, and we don't know for sure because the scripture doesn't say, but I wonder how many times that, that someone decided we're going to form a rebellion and we're going to fight back and we're going to leave this place only to fail. I wonder how many times someone came in with a stirring speech and, and, and promised that we could get out of this land and we could go back to Israel and yet they were stuck in slavery. Being stuck in slavery is a difficult thing. It was a difficult thing for the people. They were struggling. They were working. They were miserable. You know, it's so easy to think how miserable our lives are, how long that we've been waiting, and yet they were waiting for 400 years. How many times did they want to give up? But I love what Exodus 2 says, that God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant, and He saw the people, and God knew. He knew it was time to act. I just want to speak this word of encouragement to you. If, if you're caught up and you've been struggling and you've been feeling hopeless and you've been feeling despair and you've been feeling down and you've been feeling uh, uh, enslaved in, in one form or, for, or, not, or another. If you've been feeling forgotten, if you've been dis- depressed, I want you to know that when you've cried out to God, He heard you. And I want you to know today that God has remembered His covenant with you. Amen. I want you to know that He sees you. He sees you where you are and He sees what you're going through. And God knows. He knows it's time to act for you. He knows it's time to act. I believe this is a year when God is ready to act on your behalf. Amen. Imagine Moses walks in. You, you remember the stories of Moses, but you haven't heard about Moses in 40 years. Moses was a man that was saved out of the river and he ended up, uh, he was supposed to be killed, but he was rescued and he ended up growing up in the house of Pharaoh uh, as a son to Pharaoh. And he had the best of everything. He was raised as an Egyptian prince, even though he was a Hebrew. But at one point in his life, he ends up committing murder. And he runs to the backside of the desert. And he spends 40 years disappeared in the desert. 40 years he had been wanted for murder. But after 40 years, most of a lifetime, his name was a distant memory. They figured maybe he's gone and died. Maybe the wolves got him. We don't know what happened to him. But who is Moses? And suddenly Moses shows back up. And Moses starts with these great claims. God sent me. To deliver you. Now if you've been in bondage for 400 years. How quick are you going to be to believe him? You see. They had to deal with some dream killers in their life. When Moses walked in and promised deliverance. And promised that God was going to show up. They had to deal with with things that were killing their dream. Just as we do today. They had to deal with unfulfilled expectations. Maybe you've been praying and maybe you've been believing, but it just didn't happen. Maybe you got a word, maybe you got a promise, but it just didn't happen. And so the unfulfilled expectations of living a life where it it just seemed like God didn't come through. And now you come back in and you say, you know what? I prayed and it didn't happen. Don't get my hopes up again. Unfulfilled expectations. 
Maybe you have dealt with the giant of unrelenting doubt. You know what? I'm, I'm just not sure that it can actually happen. It's been too long. We're too deep in. I don't know that I could ever get out. You know that the devil is a master of sowing seeds of doubt in your life. You see, if he can sow doubt into your mind... He doesn't really have to do anything else because the doubt will control you and keep you down. And so he can move on to the next thing. If he can get that doubt to grow in you, unrelenting doubt, it has to die. Unchangeable circumstances. Quit getting my hopes up. Because when you get my hopes up, Pastor Rand, and when you start talking about all this good stuff, this promised stuff, and I keep thinking that maybe this is the time, but every time it doesn't happen, my circumstances, they just seem unchangeable. But the higher you lift me up, when it doesn't happen, the farther I have to fall. My circumstances are unchangeable. Three things that, that will kill what God is trying to do, but we have to get past them because God sent Moses and said, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. I don't know if any of you saw the new Exodus movie. How many of you saw the movie Exodus? Okay, no one. Okay, a few. All right, bunch of heathens. No, just, I kid, I kid. I'm just, I'm just joking. Um, I, you know, it was an interesting movie. Uh, when you know the full context of the scripture, it, it's difficult. It's difficult to watch a movie where they take the piece that, like, I really don't care if they read between the lines. But when you take the piece that you know is biblical, why did you have to mess with that? You know what I'm saying? Like, like I don't know why. There's, there's. It's a great story. Let the story be. Jesus, or God comes out as a little kid. It's, it's, it's creepy. Like, why does God have to be a creepy little kid? I don't know. But anyway, uh, but it, it really did show me some very interesting things, and in it, in it, in it really uh, illuminated and personified some, some things that I really enjoyed seeing. Uh, and, and what you realized is that it was a very precarious time, and you've got a picture, just a glimpse of the slavery and what it was like. But I loved some of the plagues that they showed. I thought they did a really good job with some of the ten plagues because here's what God did. God sent Moses. He said, go tell my, don't go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And if he doesn't, I'm going to send plagues. And so one after another, uh, Moses goes to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says no or, or whatever he does and, and God sends a plague. There were ten plagues. First, he turned the water to blood. Now, this was a serious problem because the Nile River was the lifeblood of Egypt. Uh, And and so when it turned to blood, it became unusable, uh, and it messed up their entire economy, and and God turned the water to blood. Then Then he brought frogs. Then he brought lice. Then he brought flies. Then there was uh, cattles. Their, Their cattle had all kinds of diseases. Then he brought boils to their body. Hail and fire, locusts, darkness. And finally, when Pharaoh refused to let the people go, God had to get ever more serious, and he brought death. Now, I talked to you briefly about this last week. Here's what what God said. He said, Moses, tell my people that the angel of death is going to pass over. And he's going to kill the firstborn of your sons and the firstborn of your livestock. But if you do what I'm telling you, the angel of death will pass over your house and death will not come to your home. So here's what he said. He said, on, at twilight, on the evening of the Passover, 
I want you to slaughter a perfect, spotless lamb without blemish. I want you to take that blood and I want you to put it over the doorpost. Now think about what's happening here. If the blood is on the doorpost, the firstborn son will not die. You know what I was thinking about when I was, when I was watching that? I was thinking about I'm the firstborn son in my family. I would have been out there in my, with my father making sure there was, like, you missed a spot. Like, you must make sure we get that again, you know. <laughs> you, know it, you know, and when my father stepped back and said, I'll think that'll do, I'll be like, no, 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 that's not enough. Let's get some more. <laughs> uh, and so he said, I want you to put the blood all the way over the doorpost. And then I want you to go inside, and I, I want you to eat the entire lamb. And if, you're, if your family is not large enough to eat the entire lamb that night, I want you to get multiple families, bring them into your home, and I want you to all eat the lamb. The, the lamb has to be completely eaten. And so what happened was, the families that did this, the children of Israel that did this, uh, they put the blood on their deal. They, they ate the lamb. They also ate unleavened bread. Unleavened bread is a very bland bread. It doesn't have leaven, which makes it rise. Uh, also gives it flavor. Uh, and so they, they ate unleavened bread, uh, which, which in contrast to the wine that they, they, they drank, it was a contrast of the bland, dull life of slavery versus the rich, flavorful life of living with God. So this is, there's this stark contrast between the bland, unleavened bread and the richness of the wine. He said, I want, you to, I want you to have a reminder that the life of bondage may seem appetizing, but it is really bland in comparison to life in Christ. And so he said, drink it, drink the, the wine, uh, eat the lamb, eat the, eat the bread, and the angel is going to pass over you. Now, you probably know the story that the angel passed over the Israelites' home, didn't kill any of their livestock or any of their sons, but he went over the, the Egyptians and he killed all of their firstborn and all of their firstborn of their livestock, even Pharaoh's son. And that's when Pharaoh let the people go and they were able to leave bondage and slavery. Now, from that day until now, 3,500 years or so, 4,000 years, however long it's been, uh, Jewish people celebrate the Passover every year. It's one of their main and primary feasts. It's one of the most important feasts that they celebrate every year. The celebration lasts about seven days, culminating on the last night where they eat this uh, Passover meal together. Now, they do this because they want to be reminded of what it was like in slavery and what it's like being out of slavery. You see, the farther you get away from slavery, the easier it is to forget what it was like when you were there. The farther you get away from slavery, the easier it is to forget what others are going through that are still in slavery. And so God said, I want you to partake of the Passover every year, and I want you to do it this way because I want you to remind yourselves of what it was like then. 14 parts to this dinner. Now, I want you to take really good notes because when you leave here, you're not going to be able to get out of the building without taking a test and passing all of these 14 things. I'm, I, again, I'm joking. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, where's my notes? Uh, <laughs> uh, 14 parts. Let me give them to you really quickly. 
The first thing they did was called sanctification. This is where they took the first cup of wine and they drank it. Uh, the first cup was called the Kadesh, and it means uh, uh, sanctified or sanctification. You may have known one of the names of God is Jehovah M. Kadesh, or the God who sanctifies. So they took the first cup, which we're talking about today, which is the cup of sanctification, the cup of salvation. Uh, the second thing they do is they would wash their hands to prepare for eating, uh, but they would not say a blessing at this point. Then they would eat a vegetable, usually parsley dipped in salt water. Uh, This represented the lowly origins of the Jewish people. Uh, And the tears, the salt water represented the tears shed in slavery. They usually used parsley, parsley because when you dipped it in the salt water and then you shook it off, it looks like tears dripping off the parsley. And so that was a reminder to them. Then they would break one of the breads, one of the unleavened breads, the fifth thing that they do, uh, they, they would tell the story. And, and I can't wait to talk to you more about this last week because at the end of telling the story, th- this part of it is called, they would ask four questions called the Ma uh, Nishtana. And the youngest person in the group would ask four very important questions. And, and the Hebrew word translated means, why is it different? Very important piece to what's happening. We'll talk about it next week. So they'd ask four questions, and then they would drink the second cup and bless it and drink it. Then they would wash their hands and say another blessing. Then they would say blessings over the grain products and eat some of the matzah, which matzah, which is the bread. The eighth thing that they would do was eat some of the bitter herbs. Uh, they would say a blessing over the bitter, bitter vegetables. This symbolized the bitterness of slavery. And then they would turn it into like a, a mixture, uh, which represented the mortar of the bricks while they were in slavery. And then they would take, the next thing they'd do is take some of that, put it on bread, and, and make a sandwich out of it. Uh, almost like as an appetizer, they would eat it as a, as a sandwich. And then they would have a big dinner, a very festive meal. The 11th thing they'd do is called the afikamen. Uh, then they would, play, they would eat some of the bread as a dessert. Uh, 12th thing, uh, they would say grace after the meals, and they would pour the third cup of the wine. Uh, they would recite a blessing uh, uh, and grace, and then they would drink the third cup. And then they would sing praises, sing psalms, uh, read psalms, uh, and then they would say another blessing and drink the last cup. And the final thing that they would do was... Uh, they would wish that the Messiah would come within the next year and uh, sing some hymns and tell some stories. These are 14 things that happen every year uh, at, the, at the Passover meal. It's a very, very important meal. And it's all done strictly in a way to remind them of where they came from. Three things I want you to know about their slavery. Three, three things that they were reminding themselves of. Number one, that they were forced to make bricks as slaves. They built most of the wonders of the, of, of the world that are in ancient Egypt. They, the, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, built them as slaves in Egypt. They weren't paid. They weren't compensated. They didn't get to share in the credit. Well, we, we don't call them uh, the, the, the pyramids that the Hebrews built. We call them the Egyptian pyramids. They don't, they, they don't get to share in the credit in, in history, even though that they built them. Slavery, you see, is any time you are submitted to a dominating influence. It tells you how to live your life. And you may feel stuck or you may feel trapped. You feel enslaved. And and sin wants to enslave you. The, The same spirit that enslaved the Israelites in Egypt exists today. And he's trying to enslave us. He's trying to enslave us to sin. And he's trying to enslave us to addictions. And he's trying to make you feel trapped uh, by problems and cares 
cares of this world and, and desires of this world and the sins of this world and is trying to enslave you. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 34, I tell you most solemnly that anyone who chooses a life of sin is trapped in a dead-end life and is in fact a slave. A slave is a transient who can't come and go at will. The first thing that, that sin wants to do is it wants to entrap you and it wants to slay, enslave you and, and keep you in bondage where you can't come and go and live your life as you will. The second thing that they did while they were in slavery was that they murdered their sons. Pharaoh literally, first he ordered the midwives and he said, when the Hebrews have a child, if it's a girl, let it live. But if it's a boy, break its neck. And when the midwives wouldn't do it, Pharaoh said, fine, I want you to take all of the male child ch children and I want you to throw them in the Nile River and drown them. He was trying to kill their kids. And I don't know if you were aware, but the devil is still trying to do the same thing today. He's trying to kill our children. And think about this. When he kills our children in any form from abortion to school violence to, to gun killings. I, I was watching on the news the other day and my son was mortified. He couldn't get it uh, at seven years old because there was a, a, they were showing this terrorist. You may have seen it. And next to him was a boy that looked to be about eight years old. And he had a gun and it was showing. And it didn't show it for sure. But they think that they were teaching him and he shot an innocent man and just shot him in the back of the head and killed him. This is what's happening in the world today. And what, here's what happens when the enemy takes out your kids, he takes out, uh, he, 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 he takes out your, um, uh, your future, your hope. Uh, he, he's trying to kill your potential. You see, in, in the Bible, a son represented potential. It re represented a future. And so when, he, when the devil tries to take out our kids, he's still trying to do this. Even if he isn't getting your kids, he's trying to steal your potential. He's trying to steal the things you're giving birth to. He's trying to steal the things you're building, that you're growing, that you're raising. He's trying to kill your potential. The Bible says in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. The enemy is trying to steal from you and leave you empty. No future, no hope. But that's not God's plan for you. The third thing is, is they, he requ they required them to collect their own straw. In, in essence, they would work all day for the Egyptians. And then when they were done with working long hours, they didn't work banker's hours. They worked long hours. And after they were done, then they had to go out in the dark and collect their own straw and deal with their own livestock just so they could survive. So they were adding hours to their day. And they were exhausting them. Think about this. They left them so exhausted that they didn't have the will or the strength to even fight back. And that's what the devil wants to do to you. He wants to get you to a place where you're so exhausted, you're so worn out, you've been fighting from the moment you woke up to the moment you try to go to sleep, then you can't sleep and you can't rest, and so you find yourself so exhausted you don't have the energy to even fight back. You know that if you could just pray you'd feel better, but you don't even have the energy to pray. You know that if I could just worship for a moment, God would lift me up, but we're so exhausted, we cannot worship. 
He's trying to steal. He's trying to kill. He's trying to destroy. The devil may have tried to steal your freedom, but you can't give up. The devil may have tried to kill your potential, but you're not dead yet. The devil may be trying to destroy your life to exhaust you, but you've still got some life left in you. Why? Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, when God lives and breathes in you, and he does as surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life with his spirit spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ. I go back to 1 Peter chapter 1 that I read to you when we began today. What a God we have and how fortunate we are to have him, the father of our master Jesus. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we've been given a brand new life and we have, say it with me, everything to live for, including a future in heaven. And the future starts now. I want you to understand something today. You have potential. You have life. You have a promise and your future begins now. You better just turn to the devil and say, back yourself up. My future starts today. It begins today. It begins today. And it all starts with the drinking of the first cup, the cup of sanctification, the, the promise of salvation. I know so many people caught up in slavery. I know so many people enslaved to sin, feeling empty and without potential, feeling exhausted and burnt out. They're slaves. Maybe they know it, maybe they don't. Do you know someone like that? I wonder if even now their names are entering your mind, their faces are filling your mind, their stories are coming to you now. People who are enslaved. People in, who need Jesus. They need brand new life. They need hope in a future. You may actually be that person today. The greatest miracle that the world has ever seen was not opening the blind eyes, was not healing the lame man, was not healing cancer, was not raising Lazarus from the grave or parting the Red Sea, but the greatest miracle that the world has ever seen and continues to see is every time that God says, I will bring you out from slavery, and He saves you, and He covers you with His blood, and He allows you to live with Him, not just now, but in eternity. The greatest miracle that the world has ever seen is the miracle of salvation. And the great purpose of my life is to help as many people as I can drink from this cup. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus gives three parables. One sermon, three parables. All three of them with the same basic point. He gives us a parable about the lost sheep. A, a shepherd has a hundred sheep. He loses one. He goes in search of them. A lady has... Ten silver coins, she loses one, and she turns her house upside down looking for the one lost coin. A father has two sons. One of them leaves. He loses him. But he spends his days looking and waiting for him to return. In this, we get a glimpse at the heart and the focus of God. Let me put it to you in a, in a story about my own life. When my son, who's seven now, was about two and a half or three years old, we took him to the movies on like a Friday night, Saturday night. It was very busy. And uh, as we walked in, my wife said to me, Randy's your responsibility. I'm going to the restroom. 
I wasn't thinking. That never registered. We look up. Randy's gone. She comes back and she says, where's Randy? And I said, I don't know. I thought he was with you. And uh, I know, typical male. And, and, and suddenly we realize our son is gone. The movie theater is packed right, right here in, in front of the mall. The movie theater is packed. And, and my two and a half, three-year-old son is gone. Now, you can imagine the panic that set in. My wife lost her mind. She ran into the back kitchen. I don't know what my son would be doing behind the thing in the kitchen, but she went back there just to make sure he wasn't there. I remember she grabbed the security guard. Uh, Probably not a good idea to grab a policeman like this, but she grabbed him by his shirt like this and said, Lock the doors! Now, I'm not a panicker, and so my mind slows down, and I begin to think, now, what would my two-and-a-half, three-year-old son? And so we go on this search in what seemed like an eternity, probably wasn't that long. Finally, we find him, and I, and I was trying to remember the other day when I was telling this story what game he was playing, and I remembered uh, uh, this morning. He was playing a race car game, and he was sitting in one of the seats with a high back, and he was so small you couldn't see him. And finally, we got ourselves worked around in a position that we could see just a glimpse of that blonde hair playing a race car game. No money. It's saying insert coin. Now I want you to consider this. For me and for Lindsay in that moment, nothing mattered except for finding our kid. I didn't, I didn't look at Lindsay and go, well, you know what? We still got Kennedy. She's the good one anyway. You know, 50%. That's pretty good. That's good parenting right there. No, no, no. What if while looking, Kennedy had come up to me and said, Dad, I just need an ice cream. Can I have an ice cream? Can you imagine the look that would have been on my face? We're looking for your brother. He's lost. You're asking me for, I don't even know how to respond to you right now. No, the only thing that mattered was finding that boy. When I read these three parables, we get a glimpse of the heart of Jesus. And I think to myself, I wonder if that's what God is thinking. The only thing on his mind is finding his lost kids. And what he wants from us is to help us find them, to help him find them. And I wonder if when I'm asking God for ice cream, he's looking at me with confusion on his face going you're talking about ice cream and I'm talking about my kids that are lost and I need you to help me find them it's the heart of Jesus Jesus says I I paid this great price so that all could find life It's, it's this heart it's with this in mind that we've set up uh, and we've said that because I I believe this is the primary focus of God I think this is the most important cup if you don't get this first cup none of the others matter if you don't get the cup of salvation if you don't drink of the cup of salvation the other three don't matter the other promises they they won't help you if you don't get this cup I think this is the most important cup I think it's the most important thing that we do and it's why that we keep this as the primary focus when, when we set up our Sunday morning services. It's with this in mind. Because I refuse to pastor a church 
where lost kids cannot find Jesus. I, re- I refuse to pastor a church that's just talking about ice cream and not looking for the lost kid. I refuse to pastor a church and to have a service on, uh, 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 where the people that you were thinking about just a few moments ago that were caught up in slavery, the name, the picture, the story, where they wouldn't feel welcome to come in and find Jesus. I refuse I refuse to have a service that's all about me when Jesus is all about the lost. You see, everywhere that Jesus went, you find sinners. Jesus spent more time with sinners than he did with saints. He went to the temple all the time, every day. He never forsook the, the temple. But he was, you, you find him time and time and time again right in the midst of sinners. And I want a church where sinners are welcome. That's, you know, we do things a little bit differently. We've made some changes over the years. Over the last decade, things look a little bit different. And that's with this idea in mind. If Jesus is looking for the lost, I want to help him. I want a place where you can invite someone and they can find Jesus. I know too many slaves, slaves to sin, that need Jesus. Here's the deal. I'm going to say, uh, I'm, I'm going to close this morning by inviting you to drink of the third cup with me. You should have received communion when you came in today. If you did not receive a little cup, uh, if you just slip up your hands, one of our ushers will bring one to you uh, as quickly as we can, guys. Uh, and... Um, Why don't you stand with me? I think this would be a good time to stand as we partake of the Lord's Supper together. Today we're specifically, I want you to be reminded of the first cup, the cup of salvation. This is the cup that sets up the rest. Kadesh, the God who sanctifies. If you don't know Jesus today, Paul tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we should examine ourselves. Do you need to make a fresh start with Jesus today? He promises salvation, but do you need him? every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, for those in the room that have fallen away from you, we give our lives back to you. Forgive us of our sins. Set us free. Cover us with your blood. Wash us clean. Be our Lord and our Savior.